Hey everyone, time again for another Word Balloon comic book conversation. John Suntress here, really happy to welcome back Fred Van Lenty. Fred and Ryan Dunlevy have been doing some amazing work over the years, uh, action philosophers, the comic book history of comics, which uh, is back in print with new added material, uh, also including the contributions of uh, other countries in the form of comic books, and also the women that have been so important to uh, the comic book history. So that's been a great collection. But uh, starting this week, uh, Fred and Ryan are releasing Action Presidents, and their first volume about George Washington hits bookstores and comic stores this week. Really excited to uh, see this finally in print. This is a project that the two of them have been playing with for quite some time. I've seen uh, individual comics that were condensed versions of what we're getting in this uh, beautiful graphic novel that is a great all-ages product, uh, and it's great to see the the final product finally come out. It's beautiful, 110 pages, uh, great Ryan Dunleavy art, very great Fred Van Lenty script. They are uh, doing good work because it's funny as hell, but it's also legitimately informative and uh, especially interesting in our current environment with our current president to uh, remember a really honorable admirable president in George Washington. If you know about chopping the cherry tree, and yeah, he was our first president, um, you only know the, the, the tip of the iceberg. And, and the real story is much more fascinating than some of the legends like the cherry tree that have come out over the years. But great excuse to uh, talk to Fred. He is also in the midst of uh, some novel writing. He has a great new mystery novel out called uh, Ten Little Comedians. We talk about that. We talk about uh, just things in general. It's uh, great to catch up with Fred because he is a legitimate historian uh, based on his work uh, now in the uh, presidential realm. And uh, we talk about uh, the future for action presidents uh, that is not going to just stop with uh, the Washington book. And uh, it's just a great chance to catch up. He's he's one of my favorite people in comics. Uh, We've gotten to hang out socially a bit as well. I, I adore his wife, the genius playwright uh, Crystal Skillman who is quite the force in off-Broadway productions and productions around the country and even seeping into Canada. Uh, Fred and Crystal wrote King Kirby a great play about uh, the life of Jack Kirby that uh, has uh, played in uh, already several cities. Uh, I, I They're a power couple. That's, a, that's the best way to describe them. So uh, I, I talked to the man. When uh, when the time comes, we'll have Crystal back as well. She's also been on Word Balloon. But today, the spotlight belongs to Fred Van Lenty talking about action presidents, the comic book history of comics, and a whole lot more on today's Word Balloon. I think you're going to enjoy it. Brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your continued support. It means a lot. Uh, Word Balloon, as I've said in uh, the most uh, latest uh, episodes, is uh, getting great opportunities to go some, into some really interesting directions. And uh, when some of these things get final, I'll be happy to share more details with you. But uh, you're helping keep the lights on, and that's really important. And, um, you know, I'm working in uh, part-time radio, and uh, hopefully uh, things will improve in, in the weeks and months ahead. I will see, so, uh, certainly keep you abreast of what's going on. But it's been challenging in my broadcasting career, and uh, you've helped me keep my podcast career going. So I can't thank you enough for the support. Uh, it's through Patreon. If you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, you don't have to. 
But if you think uh, what I'm doing is worth your while and uh, you want to help contribute to the effort, it would mean a lot. So uh, go to patreon.com slash wordballoon, or you can go to wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad, and uh, truly, thank you very much. Uh, new new uh, people joining all the time, and uh, I, I appreciate the uh, support that I get from the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you. Word Balloon is also brought to you by our usual sponsor, InStockTrades at InStockTrades.com. There are some great collections that are available this week at InStockTrades. I notice uh, there's a Green Lantern Corps uh, collection that is now available. And this is reaching back to the original Green Lantern Corps run of the 80s. Uh, Steve Englehart, Alan Moore, Joe Staten, uh, lots of others. Englehart and Staten really put their stamp on this book. It was the first time that we were looking at uh, people like Kilowog and uh, Hector Hammond and Star Sapphire in there, certainly, Arissa. Um, just great stuff. It collects uh, Green Lantern Corps 2000, or 207 through 215 and the Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Annual number two. I'm betting with Alan Moore in there, I bet we're getting the uh, Mogo story that uh, you know is, uh, is a certain classic. So uh, check it out, 42% off. It's just $23.00. And 19 cents. Among the other books available, you can get uh, Absolute Wonder Woman by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang. Uh, a great team. One of the real highlights of the new 52 was this very interesting, controversial at times, but always compelling run of Wonder Woman. We talked to Brian many times about this run. Gotta get Cliff on Word Balloon. He's always been friendly at conventions. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm such an admirer of his art. And uh, everything that he does. And this is a great example, a great body of work. It's uh, 456 pages, 50% off, $62.50 for Volume 2 of Absolute Wonder Woman by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang. You can also get House of Secrets, the Bronze Age omnibus. This is a pretty neat product. Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson, among others. Uh, It features uh, uh, stories from House of Secrets 81 through 111. Lots of pages here, man. 864 pages in this collection. Great writing, great art. Uh, Alfredo Alcala is in there, and uh, Jim Aparo, and so many other wonderful artists uh, doing uh, DC mystery and horror in uh, their own inimitable way. And, of course, the great Bernie Wrightson as well. 50% off for this collection, $62.50. Let's uh, let's see if we can get some other uh, kind of more reasonable uh, priced items. Uh, we got a Bendis tape coming up, Invincible Iron Man hardcover by uh, Brian Bendis, Dave Marquez, Mike Deodato, uh really good stuff. This collects Invincible Iron Man 1 through 14, and uh, it is 328 pages long. Uh, I think you ought to check it out. 42% off. It's just $23.19. Some of the great books that are available at InStockTrades.com. I'll tell you what. We'll talk about Fred Van Lenty product uh, at the uh, close of our interview. But check it out. Great books, great prices at InStockTrades.com. All right, without further ado, let's uh, get into our conversation with Fred Van Lenty. I, I really appreciated uh, some of the places we went because um, there's a piece of comic book history, or I should say comic strip history right now that's been on my mind for the last month or so. And uh, this uh, conversation afforded me the real chance to really talk about it. I think I've talked about it briefly on the All Yeah podcast with Art Balthazar and Franco. But Fred being a comic historian... I wanted to get his point of view on this as well. So uh, that and a lot more. Uh, we celebrate Action Presidents as we approach President's Day starting at the beginning of the week. And uh, whether you're a fan of the current president or not, uh, don't forget some of the great men that have held the office. 
and uh, certainly starting with the father of our country, George Washington. This is a truly great man. And uh, this book is funny, entertaining, but also legitimately educational, too. So it's a, a great piece of work from artist Ryan Dunleavy, who we'll be talking to in the weeks ahead, and also our friend Fred Van Lenty. So here's our conversation now with Fred on Word Balloon. Fred Van Lenty, welcome back to Word Balloon. It's always a pleasure to have you back. How you been? Always glad to talk to you, John. I've been well. How are you? Doing all right. I'm uh, psyched to see uh, you and Ryan back in action with Action Presidents. Indeed. And uh, the franchise uh, continues beyond that because I know you're also in the midst of uh, uh, the. I always get it wrong. Is it the comic book history of comics? Hey, uh, always ended. You did get. You did it right. That a boy. All right. Good deal. Where are you in that series currently? So, um, IDW, who published the black and white version, um, uh, is now publishing a color version of our material that Adam Kozowski is doing a great job on. Uh, except this version uh, has new material. It's yeah. got uh, yeah. variant covers that the, in the first series were the prehistory of comics. Now it's the world history of comics. We focus on a different country uh, in each cover. This one, the one uh, coming out in February, is Kenya. Oh, interesting. Cool. Great nation of Kenya. Uh, and then we also have uh, his, uh, her story backups in each issue, which yes. are on uh, great and interesting um, women in comics. Right. Uh, history. So so it's, it's all new stuff. Uh, the first one was called The Birth of a Medium and traced the beginnings of comics from The Yellow Kid to Robert Crumb, essentially. That was that period. Okay. And then, then that trade came out uh, August, I think. And now the new one, which is subtitled Comics for All, takes a more international look. Uh, the first issue, we did a lot of uh, France, and Fran uh, France and Belgium. This new one is um, in India, actually, was the was the alternate cover for that one. And uh, in the second issue, we look at England. Uh, and the third issue is going to be... Um, uh, manga in Japan as seen through the life of the great uh, Asama Tezuka. Okay, okay. Known as the god of manga. So do you? So you do a cover, and then do you do material as well inside, talking about each country? Uh, well, the covers—it's sort of different stuff. The interiors are uh, different than what's on the cover. You got the her story stuff going on, and I want to hear about you know what you have added you know to the series so far, as far as those goes. So the covers. Because obviously, yeah, Britain from the Beano in 2000 AD and right. Uh, oh, I forget the action. Co well, I know one was called Action Comics and Battle. I know and um, sure. I just had Pat Mills on in the last six months. Oh, lovely! Yeah, yeah talking about Charlie's his, War. Pardon? Charlie's War is my favorite thing. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And also, you know, uh, wrote his own. You know, this is the way I remember it. Sort of uh, history of 2000 AD and what he was doing before. 2008. Oh, very cool. And then also he has kind of a fictionalized uh, series that he's doing based on his 70s comics adventures. And uh, yeah, no, he's I'm, cool. I'm thrilled with what he's doing. And, the, you know, those are all prose uh, projects. Um, yeah, so, well, first of all, regarding Kenya. Now, Kenya's the new alternate cover for the February issue, you say? Right, yeah, yeah. So yeah. What, what is Ken? I had no idea Kenya had a, a, comics, a specific comics history. Tell me about it. 
Well, we're specifically looking at uh, a contemporary artist by the name of Gada, who goes, who's actually uh, Tanzanian by birth, but has spent his whole professional career in uh, in Kenya. Okay. Uh, and he goes by the pen name of Gado, and he's a very well-known political cartoonist. So we focus oh. mostly on political cartoons on that and his sort of struggles with uh, the – you know, a lot of African countries struggle with institutionalized corruption, and the media is no different. You know, and so you've got a real problem there where like uh, the, 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 the media in, in Kenya particularly has to deal with two issues, one of which is are extremely liberal uh, – Libel laws, not unlike what they have in England, um, where it's very easy for you to get sued by a politician or businessman when you print things they don't like, even though they are true or perhaps because they're true. So that's a problem. And then the, the, there's there's a, a unusual situation in Kenya where the press is supposed to be partially funded by a – or they're supposed to – part of their advertising revenue – you're a media guy, so you'll appreciate yeah, this. Yeah. Part of their media revenue or their advertising revenue is supposed to come from a, a advertising agency that is actually run by the government. Right. Okay. State run. Yeah. State run media. Uh, at least partially. But, partially. Well, twenty. Yeah, twenty five percent. Okay. But uh, but the um, according to recent reporting, that agency never pays them anything. So wow, I, they're not doing anything or they're pocketing it. Interesting. Well, and so, yeah. Gallo recently lost his job at the largest. Um, newspaper in Kenya um, because he managed to irritate the president of neighboring Tanzania by describing him as a, you know, drawing him as a corrupt douchebag. Sure, sure. Wow. Crazy. So we talk about those issues, using largely a lot of uh, quotes from Gatto himself. Okay. Who's a, he's a great speaker. If, you, if you're if you in TED Talks, he does a great TED Talk if you Google. Oh, I'd love to see that. I love when... Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting stuff. Yeah, I love when I love when cartoonists have been doing TED talks, and no, it'd be great to hear. And and truly, we are so American centric with our appreciation and understanding of comics that sure. I mean, the whole Charlie Hebdo thing that you know happened in France, right. you know, a couple of years ago. Obviously, you know, yeah, you don't realize how lucky we are to be able to you know play in satire at sure. the level that we do compared to a lot of the yeah. rest of the world. We just get denounced on Twitter. That's right. Exactly. Or, you know, fake news. Uh, fake news. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, that's so. That was good, John. I, you know, much to my chagrin, I know so many of my radio people are like, oh, you should do that on Biz Bits on radio. And I'm like, yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> it's it's really not fun. It's a curse. It's a curse and a blessing. Exactly. So, woof. Man, that's, that's terrific, though. And I'm really glad you're expanding that way. And then the Her Story feature as right. well. Um, so... As you say now, is it coming out? How big are the volumes then? That you know, you said that, like for instance, the first volume. So, are they coming out as colored trades? Is that is that what's happening? No, no, no. These are regular, like floppy comics. Okay. And the Kenya story, the Kenya strip, uh, is a variant cover. Right. So we're doing variant covers. The first version, the first thing we did for the first series were the prehistory, which so we did like hieroglyphics and. Okay. Scrolls in various kind of ancient forms of, of in Thomas Nast, which isn't technically ancient, but you know stuff that occurred prior to essentially the Yellow Kid. Yeah, twentieth century stuff. Sure. That le- that led up to to um, Crumb. To to the, well. Oh. The prehistory covers all focused on things like you know cave drawings and stuff, and other other ways that humans have told stories through pictures throughout 
to thousands of years. Okay. History. Uh, and then the then we wanted to do something new. Also, we kind of got up to the present in the first series, so we, so we kind of ran out of things there. So I thought I came up with the idea of doing the there's a lot. The second half of the material is much more focused internationally. So I thought, well, let's try and do. Um, countries so we're doing india kenya mexico and brazil wow okay and then the, and then the her the her story features uh a bunch of interesting things um ryan kind of tracked down a lot of this stuff uh because it's a subject he's really interested in the first one is about a woman named marie duvall uh, whose pen names in the, the a lot of the issues focuses on france and so she was french but she worked primarily in great britain uh, and her claim to fame is that she created – she co-created the this character, Ali Stroper, who was the first reoccurring comics character hmm. who appeared in a – he was this – he's this kind of like uh, shifty, um, cheap kind of not, – not quite a con man but like a, a, a guy who doesn't want to work for – honestly for a living and is constantly trying to like cut corners and, you know – uh, get ahead in life by with by asserting as as little effort as possible, and he always winds up kind of uh, screwing himself in the process. <laughs> okay. uh, and so she co-created that with her husband, who was the editor of this uh, um, magazine called Judy, which unsurprisingly was a competitor of Punch. Uh, they, they weren't using a lot of creativity in their satire magazine names in England in the nineteenth century, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, she's also very interesting because she started out as an actress uh, and was starring in this kind of like uh, I forget what the name of it was, but it was a it was a play about this uh, second story man, this robber, famous 18th century uh, thief, and uh, <laughs> it's not funny, but an actor, one of her actors, so 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 she played the male role, so she was the male lead in this in the. Sh- Uh, by accident during his scene, accidentally by one of the actors, I guess, had a loaded pistol or, you know, Brendan Lee style. There was too much gunpowder in the in the barrel, what have you. And so she had to kind of so she got shot while she was trying to climb up a rope ladder. And she fell off the rope ladder and landed on an iron fence. Wow. And she really messed up her leg kind of badly. Um, and so she ended up not really being able to go on stage anymore. So she became a an artist. It's sort of interesting. The, the prevalence of leg injuries in the lives of famous female cartoonists, uh, Tarpe Mills, who we f- focused on in the, in the first series, who was most famous for creating uh, Ms. Fury, mm-hmm. uh, who was a, was very big in the newspapers, uh, strip. She was the, she's essentially Catwoman. Yeah. Golden um, age, golden age heroine that, yeah. Predates yeah, Catwoman. Yeah. yeah. And, and, was the first sort of major female superhero who actually be created by a woman. She broke her foot and got stuck inside, and she had been a model and, and had been doing various odd jobs. But while well, she was laid up with this broken foot that she created, Ms. Fury. So I don't know, I don't know what the connection is between <laughs> leg injuries and female, female cartoonists and leg injuries, but but. <laughs> And, wow. And someone's had ankle surgery. I feel your pain, ladies. Wow, crazy man. So. How many more issues in uh, comic book history of comics? The second one's going to be four, so it'll be ten total issues spread out over two trades. Okay, all color. So it's 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 all color and 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 with some new stuff. And then the last issue of this new series is on the um, uh, distribution system and sort of how the direct market started. Um, up to 
the seventies. Well, it's interesting because this this story was the one that required the most updating because we had published it in twenty ten. Okay. I want to say okay. when the first floppy came out. Yeah, and the big controversy in twenty ten was piracy. Was digital piracy? Yes, indeed. And not that that isn't a huge um, issue still in a variety of medium, but. Uh, a lot of the story was sort of focused on a lot of the pro-anti arguments, piracy arguments going on online at that time. And I, I, we did sort of a whole survey on our website and I interviewed a bunch of people. And so we kind of de-emphasizing piracy and adding stuff about, you know, all sorts of stuff has happened since then, like the phenomenal popularity of The Walking Dead mm-hmm. and um, the fact that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the most successful film series of all time mm-hmm. box office wise and so we address a lot of that stuff um and go more in depth on the way bookstores have sort of embraced comics and Raina Telgemeier's incredible success sure uh, that's and great that, is she the her story of that <clears throat> she, she isn't because it's it's a direct market focused story we we decided to do Wendy Peeney oh terrific very cool elf quest of course <laughs> She's a very interesting person and uh, an early uh, – and was really – and I didn't really – I mean I sort of vaguely knew this, but it wasn't until I really started researching this is that in, you go to comic book conventions and you you're, you get – if you're a comics writer or artist, you get co-billing with a cosplayer. And I didn't realize that Wendy Peeney was the first kind of celebrity cosplayer. Absolutely. Yes. Talk about As that for a second. Yes, indeed. Most, well, yeah. She was most famous for you know uh, dressing as Red Sonia, which you know shockingly – Wearing a chainmail bikini will get will make you very popular for some reason. Well, I'm yeah, but I, you know, there's nothing. I mean, hey, she's she's a lovely woman, and and certainly, you know, oh, absolutely, looked great as as Red Sonia, and helped absolutely. publicize cosplay and comics in that crucial '70s era. Absolutely, and is is as much her story is part of the comic culture as her and Richards, uh, her husband Richard, and their. Uh, contribution with ElfQuest and everything. So no, sure. She's, she's I believe got a great she story. Met, she, I believe she met him through through fan correspondence. I think is is how that happened. If I remember, if I remember that correctly, uh, she was on. They, I, I didn't realize that they had. She had a whole like troop and a whole sort of stage act as Red Sonia that they would do at cons. Oh, interesting. And she, had, she had a whole like she had a whole bunch of swords women at one point. Like it wasn't just her. There was like four. Five Red Sonias appearing simultaneously. Wow, that's crazy. That's great. Various other warrior women. She sure. appeared in the. She appeared in the. I believe it was the Mike Douglas TV show. Yes, Mike Douglas, the Philadelphia, uh, talk locally uh, produced in Philadelphia, but a nationally syndicated talk show host. There are tons of Mike Douglas shows on YouTube. In fact, I'm sure there's. When I remember as a kid watching Mike Douglas and Stan Lee, uh, being on exactly. and bringing some of those great '70s Marvel costumes that actors would wear in public appearances and Stan was dressed as pa- Captain America and George Carlin was dressed as Spider-Man. Oh, very nice. That's great. Well, Phil Suling, who basically uh, invented the direct market was the other guest on the segment oh, on that, Mike Douglas. That, that Wendy Peeney appeared on as Red Sonia. Crazy. I gotta look. Have you found video of that? Uh, I've seen stills, you know, I've not okay. actually checked to see if there is video of it. That's terrific. And you know, Westinghouse, the syndicator that, Made Mike Douglas. I mean, they were a high-powered broadcast force, really, through the '90s. Uh, Westinghouse ultimately uh, sold their assets to CBS, and in fact, even my local stations were briefly owned by Westinghouse before 
CBS merged with uh, the Westinghouse uh, okay. properties and everything. So, yeah. Um, no, that's great. And I wonder, as I said, I mean, I know there is a lot of Mike Douglas footage floating out there. And he was like a, the Ellen of his day. It was an afternoon uh, daytime sure. talk show and everything. But, yeah, oh, God, um, that's great. And like I said, I do know, I vividly remember as a child watching Stan, Joan Rivers, and George Carlin on one particular show. And Joan okay. was kind of dressed. She she didn't wear the bikini, but she was kind of dressed in a Wonder Woman-ish sort okay. of outfit that maybe had like a flag as a cloak or something like that. And I remember Carlin coming out as Spider-Man and pointing to his crotch and going, the spider and the fly, you know, <laughs> in that Carlin sort of way. And, yeah, Stan was dressed as Captain America. He's like, I'm not wearing the mask because the wings are falling off the cowl, so you'll forgive me. But uh, uh, Ty Templeton, I was on a Kirby panel with Ty Templeton. He told this great story about he was judging an early con, a, cost, a, a cosplay contest with Jack Kirby. And someone came out dressed as Hella, you know, with the whole oh, wow. the antlers yeah. and the case and everything. And Ty was kind of like trying to rib Kirby. He was like, oh, look at all this amazing, you know, this great costume. She's going to win, right? Kirby, because it's just a great interpretation of one of your costumes. And you're sort of sitting there stoically, uh, arms folded. Then somebody came out as Galactus, you know, with this elaborate costume. He's carrying a, you know, a paper mache earth with a... Oh, you know, bite out of it or whatever. <laughs> and Ty Templeton's like, "Look, Jack, isn't that amazing? You know that that uh, that that guy, you know, really interpreted one of your characters great." And Jack just sort of stood there, sat there rather, and, and didn't say anything. And then then someone in in a red the red then a woman came out in the red Sonia outfit with the with the chainmail bikini, and Jack Kirby looks at at, at Ty Templeton and goes, "She's gonna win." <laughs> of course, there you go. Lovely. Too damn funny, man. And, um, you know, there's, have you seen, have I, have I shown you, I was, you know, I did a couple conventions where I showed this half hour Canadian produced, uh, documentary about comics in the late seventies. I believe it was produced in 1978 or 79. Okay. And there are moments from either a Chicago con, but I believe it was really the New York con. And, um, there was a Wonder Woman there. There was a Hulk there. Someone had dressed as Walter Simonson and, um, oh, shame on me. Oh, gosh, it's on the tip Goodwin. of my tongue. Manhunter. Um, yeah, Goodwin. Archie yeah, Archie. Archie Goodwin. Thank you. Yeah, and the elaborate Manhunter mask and everything. And I can't remember. I don't believe a Wendy Penny. She might be in there or whatever. But you kind of see that there is more than just you know, kind of the cosplay and stuff that they are kind of doing. Well, actually, maybe it isn't just as much as when cosplay people come out. And kind of, you know, play to the crowd and stuff. But, um, yeah, I can't. I don't believe there is Wendy F- Penny footage. But I certainly have seen, like you said, the, the lots of photographs of Wendy as Red Sonia and everything. And she was, yeah, and notorious in a great way about it. And so many fanzines over the years and other articles in local papers and things that would certainly take notice of that. Really cool. And, again, because cosplay has become such a huge part or remains such a huge part of convention, that's a really good, important wrinkle to, to recognize. Yeah. I mean, although we should also point out that that you know, it was she's most famous for doing the along with Dave Sim being one of the first direct market self publishers. Well, yes, and <laughs> yeah, that was important. And along with Dave Sim being, I guess, arguably the most successful one doing it for the longest time. True, because I think she's outlasted Dave at this point. She and Richard with Elfquest, I guess they don't technically self publish anymore. But uh, 
uh, as well, and, and has retired, I believe, as a class player. <laughs> yes, I, th- I believe she has now, finally, <laughs> which is good. That's fine. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And ElfQuest, of course, you know, I think survived and, and kind of became part of the whole D&D, you know, kind of movement and everything. I also know uh, prior to Phil's conventions and stuff when – there were those original, even earlier shows, like Bill Shelley and some of the original fanzine people. They would dress up. And I don't know if they were at proper comic conventions or sci-fi conventions. But there are great early 60s photographs of, you know, them doing Captain Marvel, Shazam, you know, and uh, Golden sure. Age Flash and and Hawkman and Hawkgirl and things like that. So, you know, it certainly yeah, existed Bill before that. Bill wrote a book called The Golden Age of Comics Fandom, I believe it is, which is a ton of photos like that. Yes. That- self-published through something called Hamster Press. Yes, and yes. Big, yeah, and that was a big source for comic history comics. Excellent. With early fandom. No, man. Hey, man, I, you know I loved the original Black and White series as well, and I'm glad you guys have the opportunity to represent it now in color and um, and also add to it as well with the alternate covers. And Yeah, if you have a story. Comixology Unlimited, you get the Black and White version. You just get the Black and White version for no extra charge. It's, it's a Comixology Unlimited thing. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and then I think now you – and now the color one is also available. Fantastic. And, you know, of course you guys have, uh, you know, been doing the action philosophers thing for years. And then uh, wasn't – now Action Presidents is, uh, you know, starting up again. And we got the first issue coming out. Um, you guys were kind enough to send me an autographed uh, proof beforehand. Actually, two different copies. And I thank you for both of them. I don't know if you're oh, no I don't know if your publisher also uh, if Harper Collins also sent me a separate one as well. Uh, yeah, I bet you that that's what happened. There you go. Only one's autographed though. Indeed, and I appreciate that, that dude. Yes. From the- thank you, my man. Absolutely. That was very kind. No um, problem. So when does issue one now of uh, Harper Collins version of Action Presidents begin? So volume one comes out on February sixth, as does uh, volume two actually, both George Washington and um Abraham Lincoln drop on the same day. Excellent. And they're both 110 pages, uh, hardback graphic novels. You will find them in your local bookstore, probably in the kids section, because they are technically aimed for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. However, and and hopefully, John, you can back me up here. Yes. I, I, I firmly believe these are true all-ages comics that anyone of any age can Completely enjoy. agree. They're very, very funny. They are educational they correct a lot of easy myths that even I th- I'm assuming actually you doing the research that maybe even school history books kind of, you know, went along with the legend rather than getting down to the real history of some of these stories that have formed in Washington's pre-president years and even post-president years. Sure. Okay. Cause yeah. And I, and I, of course that's, that's, I believe the conceit of the, of the beginning of the book is to, Correct the wrongs, and let's get to the real story here behind uh, behind Washington, who really, I mean, if you really dig, don't just take Father of Our Country and I Cannot Tell a Lie and on the Cherry Tree and all that crap. There's a really, really interesting story here. And, of course, I know other historians have compared him, forgive the lofty comparison, to the, uh, the uh, uh, Roman uh, emperor, Cincinnatus. Who sure. you know led 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 the country when it needed to wanted to get back to his farm as quickly as possible after uh, you know fulfilling the obligation of leading the Roman Empire and everything and you know there's there's literally the story goes he was literally standing knee deep in poop 
when the tribunes came and said, please lead our armies and take the crown. And then he, you know, when he was done, he took the crown off and set his toga aside or whatever, <laughs> laurels aside, and went right back out to the manure patch. There you go, man. Yeah, for real. And then obviously Washington as well. And, man, we get into uh, really his not only his leading the Continental Army, but also those early years as well in the French and Indian War. Mm-hmm. Which he basically started by accident. <laughs> I don't want to. That's the thing. I mean, in its history, spoilers. But uh, yeah, you don't. You almost don't want to tip some of these great stories, and it's it's terrific. And that's the thing. The irreverent humor that you guys have already brought in your other successful projects, like Action Philosophers and the comic book history of comics, it's that same kind of irreverent fun, which will only help from a from a kid's standpoint, and I think is a great way to get kids excited about history, and certainly American history and presidents, and in our even in our current uh, state and presidents, you know, what a, what a great time to really look at the office and the people that, you know, each made it so distinct in their, you know, terms of office and everything. So this is – no, I think it's a great idea and I think it's it's time has come. Yeah, I, I was at Walt Disney World uh, two weekends ago. My wife ran the half marathon, so we went. Oh, that's great. Uh, and the Hall of Presidents was packed. Uh, in a way that I was a little surprised by. I, I think that people in – when you're in a difficult situation like we are now, people are really hungering for some kind of – they want their own idea and a positive idea of America kind of reaffirmed. And so I think that's I, – I went and actually looked on the website. It was a 700-seat theater and that place was packed. Wow. Um, for the robots to do their thing. Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, – uh, I do think that there's there's sort of a yearning for reconnecting with with this stuff and with the history in a in a positive way. And, you know, we've been working on these books since 2014. Wow, I think 2014. Yeah, so we've got two more books coming out. So it's it's all in all, it'll be 440 pages of President Comics. Fantastic, man! That's great. Uh, just what a twenty? I don't know. Yeah, like a twenty issue run in a regular comic, or a, but four four hardback volumes. Yeah, four hardback volumes. The first two are Washington Lincoln. Uh, Ryan is wrapping up Teddy Roosevelt right now, and then he'll jump right into JFK. Wow, amazing! Very cool. And it's just been very exciting to delve into the country's history and sort of apply um, the things we learned doing action philosophers and comic book history of comics to this kind of material. Sure, man. How how tough was it to sift through, like, good material and bad material in terms of, like I said, I mean, sometimes textbooks will take the easy route and, all right, legend, and, you know, we got to get to, you know, it's only so big of a book and we right. can only devote so many pages to each presidency and everything. So how many, That's... and what are the good, like, uh, you know, and certainly action presidents should represent a good first bite in terms of getting into Washington history and Lincoln history. But yeah, so yeah, tell me about finding the good the good information. Well, I was like doing hands-on stuff, so I went to Mount Vernon, Washington's awesome. home. I went to Lincoln's home in Springfield, Illinois, and, and Ford's Theater in Washington and all this stuff. And Teddy Roosevelt's estate is right here on um, in Long Island. He was born in Manhattan. Yes. Um, so it's uh, it's it's... It's a lot of fun, and I, I'm, I've always been sort of a big American Revolution nut, so that was actually a period I knew quite a bit about already. So the Washington was in many ways kind of the easier one. 
Um, and just because Washington is so kind of ridiculously essential to the United States and, and has got his fingers in so many different pies, controversies and 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 and, and issues, positive and negative, that uh, that that he really is sort of an essential figure to deal with. Um, uh, and and he's, he's you know he's a complex figure. I mean, and it's sort of interesting to sort of see him uh, uh, struggling with his role in the military, struggling with the institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the only, he's the only Southern founding father and one of the only three founding fathers to actually free his slaves in his will. Um, and yeah. his, his thoughts on that definitely, you know, uh, evolved. Yeah. Really, really a forward thinker. And especially in the context of the, the period. And, and I really like the way you kind of show that he really clearly did have conflicting thoughts about slavery as a Virginia Southerner and then being exposed because of the Continental Army uh, to all the different other states and right. how other people were living. I read a great book, uh, which I actually bought at the gift shop at Ford's Theater. The author's name eludes me, but it was – it's called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Okay. Uh, and it's a very interesting book sort of talking about pedagogy uh, in, in American school systems and – one of the main points he makes is that when you frame issues like, you know, uh, slavery and Jim Crow and a lot of the racial issues in the United States, is that is that a lot of a lot of times, you to, particularly if you're trying to take things from a traditionalist bent, people try to tell these stories as if, oh well, you know, we didn't have a choice or we didn't know any better or it was for the best. You know, it, it, it's sort of like uh, you know the 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 way the 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 degrees of denial that you get when a scandal erupts it's it's like well that didn't happen well if it did happen you know it didn't happen that way well if it did happen that way you know it wasn't bad well if it was bad then you know <laughs> you're mistaken you know what i mean so sure. it just he's chasing your tail and so people don't want to talk about things like the fact that washington sort of decided the the to that slavery was wrong but yet didn't didn't see fit to free his slaves or do anything about it until his death. Um, and, and how do you talk about the brutality of an institution like slavery in a way that, um, is appropriate for fourth and sixth graders, but at the same time, it doesn't minimize the horrors of it. Sure. You know what I mean? So that's sort of the exciting challenge, you know, it's an interesting challenge for me, um, as somebody who likes explaining things and really loves history and really loves the American revolutionary period. Um, and you do want to talk about the facts that, that, that you did have people who were conflicted and said one thing and did another, but felt kind of bad about it, you know? Yeah. Well, and also I notice I'm, and I'm flipping right now and you have a good bibliography here at the end of the book that does, uh, you know, cite a few other places that people can go if that, if you want to know more, uh, you know, <laughs> which I think is very helpful. And, um, again, it's just this, you know, Ryan's cartooning style is just great. It's bouncy. It's irreverent it echoes uh the best uh traditions of political comics but also it really is a storytelling you know fun thing that you know especially a young reader that might not only be reading you know uh some some of the great young young audience and uh, young adult kind of material that's out there in comic form and everything can also just appreciate if they're even aware of i don't know who's still getting the newspaper and reading reading the comics <laughs> at this point unfortunately but those traditions uh, are clearly no. here in terms of irreverence and storytelling you know you know they're they're not getting the newspaper john but they are reading for second books they are True. reading Diet wimpy kid yes, they yes. are reading captain Underpants. Yeah. so 
So the, I would say that they're that they may not be reading the newspaper funnies, but they're reading graphic novels. Yeah, and Bone. You're right. You know? That's true. Absolutely. Bone. Sure. Yeah, Scholastic. Uh, the Nathan, you know, another thing that 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 was a huge influence on Ryan because his son loves them or Nathan Hale's books. Uh, Nathan Hale's Hazardous Tales. Oh, sure. Books on the uh, modern the Merrimack, on World War One, on the Donner Party, and all that stuff. Oh, very cool, Matt. You know, and and Ryan will be uh, a co-feature of this episode, and uh, we'll be getting the artist perspective on action presidents and also the comic book history of comics and the things that you guys are, are working on and everything. So that's that's excellent. And, yeah, man, no, I love it. And, uh, well, again, as you know, I mean, Action Philosophers and, and the original run of the comic book history and stuff, yeah, I, I just love your guys' style, and it's always fun. And even a couple of years ago at conventions, you were walking around with a wash. Wasn't it a Washington uh, floppy? Yeah, what had happened was was we, uh, Josh Elder, who I think you may know. Yes. He's not sure. Great Chicago guy. He has a great nonprofit um, called uh, uh, Reading with Pictures, yes. and um, he was doing a textbook. He kickstarted a textbook that we contributed to, and so we did a a much 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 shorter the Washington story yes. um, uh, for the. Um, for that textbook, and that sort of became a proof of concept that then the whole rest of the uh, the book was oh terrific was was built around excellent. Is is the plan for the other volumes to come out yearly or to and, and maybe to be around like the presidential very... holiday? Because obviously the first two volumes makes sense to put them out in February. You got President's Day, and of course their true birthdays all both happening in February. Right. Yeah. That that obviously was intentional. Sure. It's. The you know it depends on when Ryan finishes. The and I, <laughs> I mean, like, too. Yeah. <laughs> I I th- think he he's I think the next one's supposed to come out in the summer. This summer? Yeah, wow, it's that's a very great. just roll out. Oh, yeah. terrific! Hey, that's fantastic. And, and I I have to assume JFK is going to come out next year because I don't think Ryan's even started yet. But okay, so so Teddy Roosevelt uh, is volume three, and then JFK is four. Exactly. Oh, very cool. Man, you know, and and truly, not to get ahead of ourselves, because I'd love to have you back for Teddy and JFK, but, um, man, I I love Ken Burns' Roosevelt uh, documentary a couple years ago. That's probably my favorite one of his films. I would agree. I totally would agree. And especially uh, Teddy's periods, pre and and during and post-presidency, all three of those periods of his life are just fascinating. But also, what happened to... His children, the Oyster Bay Roosevelts, or Roosevelts perhaps, uh, Teddy went by Roosevelt, Franklin went by Roosevelt, and man, the rivalry between the FDR side of the family and the Teddy side of the family, and the resentment maybe of Franklin's success uh, compared to uh, Theodore Jr. trying his own uh, political career and some of the tragedies that happened to uh, Teddy's children in in his uh, you know not only during his life but through World War II and as long as they survived as well very very interesting. Yes, uh, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was the oldest general on the beach at Normandy during D Day. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. And his younger brother Quentin was a flyer during World War One, shot down by the Germans, and very yes. publicly. Uh, not only you know was shot down, but the Germans took photographs of his dead body on the field, and they made it to the National American papers during the war and stuff, and just a just a terrible tragedy. And also, as the president's youngest son was kind of, 
like America's son, as as Burns said in the documentary, and really was this like little kid that was followed by the day's press and photographs and stories. And when he died as a as a young man, certainly you know thoughts went back to his childhood in the White House, and really was this kind of national sadness about his death. Really interesting stuff. Very interesting. Yeah, Quentin and uh, and his friends in the they they formed something called the White House Gang. And they ran around the White House kind of terrorizing everybody and, like, you know, ringing the, the, the servants' bells and running away when the servants showed up and running horses through the halls and stuff. And, and that's, those are the kind of nooks and crannies that you explore in the, in the Washington volume. I'm sure Lincoln will be similar and certainly Lincoln's yep. children, uh, lots of tragedy with them. And, of course, Mary Lincoln, uh, a very sad uh, case of mental illness during her life. Yeah, but but uh, while they were alive, you know, it was the first time in a long time, if not ever, that young children were being raised in the White House. Um, and so they built they built a ship on the roof of the White House. The kids did. They called the ship of state. Is this the Quantum Kids or is this Lincoln's Kids? No, this is Lincoln's Kids. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is Abraham Lincoln's Kids. And so, you know, because Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, was right across the Potomac from the White House, you could see – the Confederate flag flying on the the Confederate White House, Jefferson Davis's home, which was also a White House, shockingly. Yeah, uh, who would have thought? <laughs> and, and so, yeah, so and so so they could actually watch the fighting of of the troops trying to take civil, trying to take the city towards the end of the Civil War, and they actually had to make Lincoln go down back into the building because, like, somebody got shot on one of the. Army officers watching from the White House roof got shot by a belligerent during the battle, whether by, you know by total fluke coincidence or you know somebody actually aimed at them. We don't know. Wow. But uh, yeah, that's how close it was. Oh my uh, god! No, and I and you know you forget about in that fact, stuff. Go part on. of the tragedy you mentioned the the youngest son, I believe, was Tad died um, because there were so many troops stationed in Washington because it was so close to the South. The um, the the Potomac was basically an open air latrine because all of these um, you know, soldiers had to you know relieve themselves somewhere. Sure. Uh, except that the White House staff still drew water from the Potomac for the oh. White House to drink and bathe in, oh. and so you had a lot of typhoid, and that's what Tad died. Yeah, of. Oh, oh, yeah. Robert and Tad were the were the sons. I do remember, and of course, growing up in the land of Lincoln, we certainly learned our our Lincoln right. history. Uh, right. To the point of even reading portions of Carl Sandburg's uh, Lincoln history and as well the, the great poet and historian. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's a fascinating story. And, of course, the Daniel Day. You know, we always lean on movies, and that's another reason why I'm really glad you're doing these books. Because, And, in fact, I can't even remember which filmmaker I heard say that even just by default, the existence of a movie, it kind of becomes the official story whether you want it to or not. And and sure. and I'm really glad that it seems like more filmmakers are trying to take a little more care in getting the story right when even they're doing a fictionalized thing. But then again, they also have their uh, license to, to create fiction. In fact, I do know who it was. It was the creator of the film The Queen about Queen Elizabeth <laughs> that Helen Mirren made 10 years ago. And certainly he's also the producer of the current Netflix series The Crown which is in mm-hmm. its second season. And in fact, as we're recording, uh, the female lead won the SAG Awards uh, Best Actor Award. I believe she also won the Golden Globe for it. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's an excellent television series. And he was saying that, yeah, he was lamenting how, you know, the fiction really does become in people's minds. Like, well, the, well clearly this must be the yeah. real story. And Lincoln, is, Spielberg's Lincoln is sort of an interesting document because I was sort of fascinated by the fact that that's what they chose to – that's the incident of – the presidency that they chose to adapt, which was basically, you know, how does, it, how does a bill become a law, become an amendment, you know? Yeah, it was like the West Wing. It's like the 19th century West Wing. It really is in a, in a very amazing way. Of course, wrapped around the Civil War going on while it's happening as well. And it's not like – it's not a bad movie, but it's called Lincoln. That's true. <laughs> You know, it's like two weeks of the guy's – you know, towards the end of the guy's life where basically he's, you know – you know, trying to bribe Walton Goggins with a with a post office job to get him to vote for yes, you know, emancipation amendment, which is just kind of odd. But but I do like um, it, and I do like it. Felt like you were spending time with Lincoln. I mean, and in the I mean, sure. and obviously, what the hell do we know beyond Mac Brady tin type photographs and whatever? Cont- well, tell me because we've been leaning on the Washington book because that's what you sent me. But as far as again trying to get the story right for Lincoln. You know, how 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 hard was it, again, to get to the truth? I know, too, that Doris Kearns Goodwin, the historian, which I believe was right. one of the things that Spielberg used for uh, his film sure. and, and talked about Lincoln's cabinet and all the various political enemies that he did have in his administration to help get things done and get things passed. Yeah, his administration wasn't so – yeah, yeah. I guess it was former rivals of him for the Republican – he was obviously the first Republican um, – president yes so uh it was sort of a brand new thing and and they all pulled from the the deceased wing party but uh uh the the, i didn't really focus on that that much just because the challenge i guess the thing that i found sort of most surprising and and to a certain extent i i did also about the washington book was how much how difficult it is to sort of explain the disintegration of the union that precipitated the Civil War that lasted for this slow motion car crash for decades. Yes. And how much of that was kind of wrapped up in legalism and the way the country was structured from the first place and, you know, um, the fact so much of it was about being able to preserve your the power of your voting block if you were a slave or a free state in Congress and then – John Brown and, and the Fugitive Slave Law and, you know, the most important precipitating act really was the Dred Scott decision. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact it was named the Dred Scott decision, what a lot of people sort of don't realize, and I had to be reminded of that, is the Dred Scott decision didn't simply say, you know, you've got to allow slavery everywhere. It also said that, you know, black people couldn't be citizens. It, it, it really asserted a white supremacist vision of America that just kind of drove everybody nuts. And that was really what kind of precipitated the, 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 the real breakdown in society because – and it sort of puts the lie to the, the old canard that the, so that the South seceded for – because of states' rights and because they were having these rights imposed upon them. What the Dred Scott decision did was it actually imposed the, the, the you know, the, the slave society and, and onto the north um, because you couldn't – you couldn't have a free state. It was essentially it was essentially the Supreme Court ruled that the free st- having a free state was illegal, interesting, and unconstitutional. Yeah. Um, wow. So, so it sort of 
you know, it was sort of the opposite of Brown v. Board of Education or whatever. Well, sure. So, yeah, or separate but equal. Well, that was later, of course. But uh, no, you're, as was Brown versus Board. But uh, yeah, I, and I didn't realize that. And I had remembered the Dred Scott, you know, by name, certainly, but didn't remember the letter of the law as it yeah. was. And, and of course, also the lack of communication and the ability for each state to really be its own sovereign state still. And because of the, you know, days by horse kind of travel that was necessary sure. if you were sure. traveling interstate and, and you know, going beyond the borders of your own state and everything. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, Dred Scott's beef in the first place was that essentially his his master had taken him to was, I think it was Wisconsin, which was a free state. Right. Or, right. And didn't, for, you know, he was lived there for like six years and was still technically a slave and finally had to sue, sue the guy to get him to let him go. And that's, you know. That was the decision, yeah. And that's that's where it finally got appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. Wow. Uh, it's, it's very much what you're talking about is this guy gets taken out of – I forget what I think maybe it was Virginia. He gets taken out of a slave state, gets dragged to state, Wisconsin, yeah. whatever. The, I think also the master died. The guy who owned him died. So then he was dealing with the guy's heirs. Uh, it was a big nightmare. Wow. You know? Uh, obviously. Jesus. Um, but uh, – uh, you know, and you could just, you know, the future slaves law, you just have guys coming into, you know, it was essentially, it was ICE, you know, kind of coming in and kind of kicking doors in and, and you know, yeah. demanding those papers and stuff, sure. you know. No, it's, and again, really interesting to explore that stuff now, again, in the in the cultural uh, chaos that we find ourselves in once again. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. But again, I think that's why it's timely and uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you're doing this and I'm so glad that Harper is... Uh, so interested in making this happen as well and clearly they do yeah. believe in what you guys are doing because that was my other question and obviously I'm glad you guys you guys are able to continue but it really is this like you know uh, well they've already paid us so. <laughs> too late exactly so their they're losses <laughs> are they are they are you repackaging through them action philosophers as well or no uh the rights were held up from an, we'll, we're with another publisher, and we just began and, and are now completing the process of getting those rights back. Okay, okay. So action philosopher status is somewhat up in the air. At the okay, understood. I mean, it, not up in the air in the sense that now Ryan and I have reclaimed that reclaimed it when another publisher had it. We just don't have a – we haven't gotten around to finding another publisher yet. Okay, excellent. Well, and, and good, and I and look forward to it. But it lives on digitally everywhere also. Also available on Comixology and other digital outlets. Yes. Excellent. And I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. No, that's great, man. And, and truly, uh, yeah. I, well, like I said, I like what you guys do, and I'm glad you're doing it. And also presenting history in this very irreverent, uh, entertaining way. And it's, you know, as, as uh, our buddy Chris Neesman used to say, edutainment. Or maybe it was Tom. Uh, might have been Tom that uh, coined that phrase uh, from around comics, edutainment. But I know Chris used to like to throw it out there every now and then. When it came to you guys and you and what you guys do, so it's totally in your face, man. <laughs> and now a novel, a series is going on uh, for you as well. And I, we, I, I missed the window for the initial publication, but we're able to talk now about Ten Dead Comedians. Is that the title? That's the title. That's the one. That's my first novel. Very proud of it. Uh, it's it's a sort of a riff on Agatha Christie's and the Number None, but with <laughs> stand-up comedians instead of. Different upper lipped British people <laughs> getting knocked off. The uh, the the paperback will be out in June. That's awesome, man. 
And obviously, that is that available digitally currently and everything as well? Oh, yeah. And audiobook as well. Audiobook. Wow. Who did the audiobook, man? Uh, great guy. Great narrator. Cool. His name eludes me at the moment. Oh, okay. No worries. All right. Excellent. No celebrity, uh, no celebrity reader. So uh, tell me about your detective. If there is well, one. Or is it, like you said, is it more like and then there were none or ten little Indians where it's uh, – yeah, well, the it's a situation where a bunch of uh, variety of kinds of comedians have been t- asked to be at a deserted island, Caribbean island, and uh, they start start getting knocked off one by one, and it becomes obvious that one of them is doing it. Okay. So they got to figure out which one of them is the culprit before you know they all get killed off. So really, everybody is both. Is, everyone is simultaneously a suspect. A potential victim and a detective. Okay, and it was it was the uh, subject of or the the idea of carrying, creating the characters as comedians. Is that a comment on today's stand up world, or is it just a fun device? You know, yeah, putting these people in those kind of stand up guises. More of a fun device. I mean, you know, one of the great things about the mystery genre is, by its very nature, you get to sort of explore a world or explore sure. a society. And uh, I love comedy. I've been a, comic fans since i was you know 13 14 comedy so albums it's back when they were still being cranked oh up. yeah yeah uh my 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 parents you know sure uh, were a big fan of bill cosby as we all you were know, absolutely before, man of course before we were you know before he was bad yes um and uh <laughs> and then i sort of graduated from there to george carlin was sort of my big that uh, was my guy oh, was george too, carlin. oh my god uh, I, I appreciate your your impersonation of him this is excellent <laughs> thanks buddy <laughs> uh uh and uh, yeah, I, you know, I still go and see comedy, and still, sure. and just saw Chris Rock for the first time a month ago. Good for you! Awesome. Oh my God, that's fantastic! Where was he? I'm assuming he was locally in New York. Where was he playing? MSG. Oh, Madison Square Garden, of course, of course, yeah, he because the he can. Yeah. Man, that's so amazing! Him and again another comedian that recently again has fallen uh, in grace. Uh, Louis C.K. being able to sell out, Chappelle being able to sell out MSG. That's just insane! <laughs> and of mm-hmm. course. I remember when Steve Martin was was doing it in the late 70s and early 80s, and that was the new phenomenon of, yeah, they're stand-up, and sure, they can play Vegas and they can play big venues, but how about playing like a rock concert-sized venue or a sports con- uh, venue and right. you know, being able to perform to that si- size of a, of a crowd and everything? Let me ask you, because I'm really glad, uh, not so much to talk about Cosby, but as someone who just wrote this novel, and then also as someone who's been looking at the history of uh, comics, I'm everything that has happened recently with all the sex scandals and the harassment mm-hmm. scandals, I'm, I'm guessing you're aware of Al Cap's own history about that. Am I correct? Uh, Maybe not. Only oh, – not, not any details. Okay, because – um, and, I, and I'm happy to fill it out. And truly, I want to track down Dennis Kitchen and even maybe talk to some of my other, like Danny Fingeroff and other comic historian friends to see who the best person is to talk about this. But Al Cap, for the listeners, if you don't know, and I mentioned it briefly on uh, a recent uh, podcast I did with Art and Franco, our, our buddies who do Tiny Titans and the like, um, you know, Little Abner really was a very important comic strip from the 40s through its end in the early set or mid-70s. And Al Cap was a very prominent cartoonist on the cultural scene 
even more so than a very shy Charles Schultz would be in terms of notoriety, but also using it to go out there and work the talk shows and, and stuff. And his his career started in the 40s and 50s as being someone that seemed to be, have uh, liberal views. He attacked uh, the McCarthyism of the 50s and and did right. so with fervor. And then the 60s happened and the, the hippies and the counterculture happened. And he just couldn't connect with the hippies. And further, I think he, and I just saw him, uh, an old early 70s Dick Cavett. And his whole point was, because he was going to campuses and debating, basically, uh, college students that represented the counterculture. And he mm-hmm. felt a lot of them were really just using it as an excuse for free love and getting half naked and shaking their asses on campus without really understanding the politics involved. And, of course, he might, as you might know, had a very famous uh, debate with John Lennon and Yoko uh, when they were doing their bed in. Mm-hmm. And you can see black and white footage of of Al Cap really kind of trying to belittle John and Yoko and, and kind of not understanding where they were coming from. Well, then in the early 70s, as he was on these college campus tours, it, just like Harvey Weinstein, some of these other horrible stories, he would trick uh, a, a college newspaper female reporter to come up to his hotel room and right. sometimes try to make a move, and they were able to get away. Sometimes make a move uh, against their will, and they would be reported to the local authorities. And unfortunately, in the establishment's norm, it would be, oh, he's a celebrity. You misunderstood. Let's not ruin this great man's reputation with sure. a misunderstanding. And it would get downplayed. And it was really interesting because, of all people, Brit Hume, late of Fox News... But at the time, uh, an investigative legman for Jack Anderson, a national Washington columnist, kind of put it all together and went to Anderson and said, hey, Al Cap is really hurting people. We need to go public with this. And again, at first, Anderson was like, oh, he's a famous man. Maybe it was misunderstandings. And after the fifth case, Brit Hume is like, this guy is a sex offender. And he was saying this in 1971. And it's like, we got to bring this story to light. So it came out. It obviously discredited Cap, and Cap had reached heights to the point where he was considering challenging Ted Kennedy for his Senate seat in Massachusetts. And and Nixon and Agnew wanted Cap to run because he was this national figure. And uh, it ruined him, obviously, and slowly, little you know, papers dropped little Abner. But I wonder, much like Cosby's comedy, body of comedy, here's a guy that this scandal happened to 40 years ago, 40, I'm trying to, all right, as we're doing the math, and like 45, almost literally, almost 50 years ago. It'll be 50 years once we hit the, the 20s of 2000. What do we do with this guy's body of work, and where is it regarded now? Because you don't see a, a great company like IDW that's do, doing a wonderful job on, you know, bringing back the comic strips and stuff. What do you do with that body of work? Because it does represent this interesting time of, comment on culture, especially during its height in the 40s and 50s. And he was such an, a successful cartoonist, you know. And forgive the long tangent, Fred, but honestly, as someone who's been paying attention to comic history, um, it's like, what do we do with this guy's work? And and how do we regard it? And do we explore it? Does it get forgotten? Does it get buried? I don't know people younger than us that are even aware of what Little Abner was, and what, what Cap was able to do with the comic strip. Because I think as, again, taking away his horrible, horrible crimes that absolutely were 
you know, terrible and he deserved to get punished for him and stuff. But what do you do, you know, what do you do with that part of comic strip history where he really had an impact on the culture? Well, I mean, I'm very, I've been pretty consistent about this and I've, I'm something of a first amendment absolutist and I don't, and I, I feel like I have a, just as somebody who creates art and is also a fiction writer and nonfiction writer, I, I speak with some authority here in that the art, the art really is separate from the artist. Okay. Yeah. If you, I don't blame anyone who will never listen to another Cosby album. Of you course. Know what I mean? like, and, and I, and I, frankly, I probably wouldn't either. Um, but I think that, um, because the art is separate from the artist, the the you you don't deal with Little Abner necessarily as a historical document or as jokes or whatever it is any differently prior to the um, revelations of Cap than you than 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 you do afterwards. Okay. Yeah, no, I can, um, I agree with you, and I wonder again, and it's for each individual to decide how to handle it and what to do. Another example that I heard Phil Rosenthal, and, I, and forgive me, I want I want to hear more if you've got more opinion, but Phil, sure. Phil Rosenthal, the co-creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, was recently on Pete Holmes's podcast, and they were talking about Woody Allen and Woody Allen's album, back to comedy albums, stand-up comic. And he's like, look, I know Woody Allen currently is a very complicated subject to get into. That said, if you're a, an aspiring stand-up comic, you kind of owe it to yourself to hear that those albums because they are such well crafted, you know, routines. It's it's funny because I actually, I mean, completely separate from from any controversy, I don't like Woody Allen's stand up because he constantly laughs over his own punchlines. In it, that's, a, that's an affectation that some comics have, and very few comics have it. But if a comic does that, I it just it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. I can't I handle it. So I, I actually can't stand what he wants to Oh, that's out. really, really interesting. Well, and again, Cosby's <laughs> a great example, too. And again, back to Cap. I mean, that's a, that's what I'm saying. It's like there are cartooning lessons and storytelling lessons to be learned by, by going through Little Abner and seeing how he handled things. Because, again, in that same typical comic strip way, you know, okay, the next six weeks is going to be about, you know, Senator Blabbermouth in Dogpatch. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I just get frustrated with the this binary construction of, um, you know, here's the basket that the for the bad people, and we put all the bad people in the bad basket, and then we take every single thing they've ever done their entire lives, and we dump that in the bad basket, yep. and we put it on the and wait for the garbage man to come yep. get it. You know, it, it 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 to me that's not a whole lot different than than repressing a bad memory. Uh, I understand. You know, yes, yes. Traumatic experience. Um, and. For that matter, I, let me put it to you this way: this, this is why I, I I I feel so strongly about the art separating the art from the artist thing is because, particularly with social media, when I write something, I release something, I can find that someone has a completely different reaction to it than what I intended. Okay, and that's not and another or. You know, a very common interview question you get is, "What's the worst thing you've ever done for? Or what's the worst thing you've ever written, or whatever?" You know, <laughs> that young kind of fan interviews often say, "Like, who's the best artist you've ever worked with?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm not going to tell you." <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> that just angers everybody else who worked with me. Sure. You know? 
So once you once you create and you put it out in the world, and then readers start having a reaction to it, then that becomes what it is. You know what yes. I mean? So so the art is always the, the conversation spoken or, or or explicit between the creator and the person who's consuming it. So uh, if you don't want to watch Rosemary's Baby because you don't approve of, of Roman Polanski, I get it. But example, by the same token, but by the same token, I would never shame anyone who thinks like my wife, who her favorite movie is Rosemary's Baby. You, you know, and you're not. I'm not going to like you know sit on the couch and cross my arms Damn and sort you. of give her a, give her, give her a give her a disapproving <laughs> look because because of you know Roman Polanski directed sure. that movie. No, it's it. Also, movie, with movies, it's more complicated, right? Because then you're denigrating the the work of Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes and and and, and, and and everybody else who contributed in the, the the costume designer and the in right. the DP and everything created in the movie. No question. Um, comic script that's creation of one guy or a stand routine slightly different, but but for a movie, it's certainly more right. complicated. I mean, and truly, as we go through this, you know, current. Uh, you know, enlightened period of finding these things out about these people. You're right. I mean, Kevin Spacey's movies. Are we now no longer going to see all these, you know, Kevin Spacey movies that had all these other people involved as well? I mean, it's, it's, I, and for, I, I do want to say that House of Cards always sucked. <laughs> I never got love for that. You know, so if anything comes out of this other than no more House of Cards. I watched the SAG Awards last night and Robin Wright was up for House of Cards. And they, of course, chose a non-spacey scene to show Robin Wrights, which was easy to do. And I've been watching the series, and right. certainly Robin's her own character, or her character is her own thing. But it's uh, it's very interesting, and I liked it. I liked it better than you did. Um, but yeah, I oh, you weren't alone. What's that? <laughs> you weren't alone. Yeah, no, and obviously, no, very very popular. <laughs> My opinion is not the most popular one about <laughs> But no, it is and honestly and and truly, I'd completely forgot about Cap. Until I saw this Dick Cavett episode of him. And, man, it is right before the fall, and he is at his most smug. And, and it, But it's really, if you go through his history, he has, and I found this, and it's on YouTube. And I might use a portion of it when I really get into this subject with Cap. He has a, a half-hour radio debate with Dr. Wortham from 1948 with Dr. Wortham okay. complaining about comic strips. Well before Seduction of the Innocent. Was Cap one of the witnesses? That's a good question. I'm not sure. And that's another thing that I have to go back and investigate because you're right. Might have been Kniff who I'm thinking of. Kniff definitely was. And for people who don't know, when the Senate investigated the juvenile delinquency issue in comics and they had the Senate hearings, there were a lot of comic strip creators that really were shitting on the comic book people. And saying, hey, don't lump us. I'm, I believe Walt Kelly, I think Walt Kelly might have been a little more gentle. And even Kniff's specific testimony, I don't want to paint anybody with the wrong uh, brush if they weren't as mean. But I do know there were comic strip people that testified and said, don't lump us in with the comic book people. Because our yeah. thing is a different audience. And we are vetted through our you know newspaper syndicators. And each local paper has the right to... You know, if they don't agree with a, a subject that we're dealing with, they they can pull it, and it was much different than again a comic book on a newsstand, and how the well, this people just had you know, just had total contempt for the comic books anyway. Right. Like they just hated them anyway, whether they were you know had objectionable material or not. No, but it really, and and I do, I should go back and and look through the testimonies and see if Cap, and also in this wonderful book about Cap 
that's just, I mean, seriously, it is so good. It came out in 2013, and that's why it is so interesting. I mean, you know, again, a healthy, you know, three or four years before all the scandals really started coming to light in the current environment. And it's like, wow, here's a exactly, I mean, as nasty as anything you've read of Weinstein or Louis C.K. and literally just physically forcing women. It wasn't just a pat on the ass, which is its own, you know, infraction, and rightfully so. No, it was the graphic stuff and everything. And it's it's really interesting how this guy really was that heinous. And it was like, thank God they finally did get wise and go, no, that's, I mean, literally, it's, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm assuming that Kitchen and his author interviewed Hume. And it's he's like, this guy's a sex offender. We got to, we got to stop this. So it's really, I, I, I'm, I'm just fascinated by it. And again, and just as an observer, and when that question kind of has been rattling in my brain the last couple of weeks. Well, and it's got to be challenging to, you know, learn that kind of stuff about people that you've, whose work you idolize. And that's, yeah. and, and sometimes you never end up coming to terms with that term with that. And you never look at that artwork the same way again. Exactly. No, and he is, he's a very, very flawed man. You, but it, as you said, you cannot deny the art. And also, again, going back, it's cultural impact. It was huge. And I was even was watching a movie on Turner Classic Movies, and John Wayne happened to mention Little Abner in a, as a passing contemporary comment. And it's like, no, this sure. was like a big, big deal. And again, it, he really was afforded a nice bit of celebrity because of his comic strip from the 40s through the 70s. And it's a, it's a very interesting career. So... There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, well, thank you for indulging me on the tangent there. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so, and again, as in your position, I feel like hey, you're, you're a good person to ask about this. Um, well, yeah, and the, the novel Tended Comedians has a very thinly veiled sort of Louis C.K. character. Oh, interesting. And was uh, that kind of just luck of in terms of just serendipity and then, you know, or did you know something? That well, it wasn't. I, I wrote the book a year before the you know, the Louis C.K. stuff had been floating around for years. I'd never heard it until really, you know. I mean, the, that was kind of a common, sort of the classic, uh, you know, open secret. Kind of in the same way Cosby, I guess, was. Because I, oh, that that's right? what I've heard, that Hamilton Burris was out there going, yeah, please, Bill Cosby, let's let's really talk about Bill Cosby someday. And this was, you know, a good year or two before... Things really, you know, got crazy. I saw Cosby's. Oh, that was well. Burr is doing that. I think is what kind of, uh, you know, unleashed the 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 tidal wave. I think. Who did against it? Uh, didn't you just refer to Hannibal Burr? Yeah, Hannibal Burr. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was his that set that went viral that I think kind of unleashed well, the. I, I think he obviously knew about it, and again, I think it might have been floating around in the back rooms before his his stand up really hit and everything. I saw Cosby's last tour before the scandal hit. He came to Chicago theater, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it, like that was crazy. And I saw it with my sister and my two nephews who were adults, and we all pretty much when we all get together, it's like, God, remember we literally saw like one of Cosby's last shows before. Everything came crashing down, and certainly it's about to be reopened again. I know that as well. Do you, in, in making the book, have you, you say you're, you're a big comedy fan and stuff, and, and living in New York and comedy being such a, an important hotbed there, do you have friends that are stand-ups? Not really, just sort of passing acquaintances like uh, like Daniel Kibblesmith. Okay, sure. He's all rights comics, and, and uh, uh, though he, I don't, know how much stand-up he's done he's primarily known as a writer for colbert yep, yep. Um, he's, is he doing the lockjaw 
Yes, okay. I think yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've, you know, he's, we've come across each other on Twitter a few times and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. But, uh, no, the next novel I have coming out is much closer to home. So, yeah, now is this, a, is, it's a different set of, uh, a different world than the, the, the stand-up world? Yeah, it's the comic book world. <laughs> uh, it's called the Con Artist, and it's set at San Diego Comic Con. It's a murder mystery set at San Diego. It's Comic-Con. called Con Artist. Mm-hmm. Very good. <laughs> That's cool. That's great. I remember. And what's fun is the, the hero is a penciler. Okay. And uh, and uh, uh, so in the book in the novel, there are going to be illustrations from the the, the artist sketchbook. Uh, and a f- friend and a f- frequent collaborator of mine, Tom Fowler, is doing the illustration. Oh, that's great. Oh, fantastic. We yeah. love Tom. Absolutely. So that'll be fun. That'll be out in July. Oh, that's great. Tom's a great Tom's a great choice for that. His, man, okay. you know, between his action comics and also his uh, comedy comics as well, doing great work for Mad Magazine and also the Times He's Mixed Both, doing Archer and Armstrong and the like. So did you guys work together on Archer and Armstrong? What did you guys do together? I think what you're thinking of is Quantum and Woody. Oh, excuse me. It was... It he wasn't See, there Valiant you go. Versus, My ignorance uh, of the Valiant uh, universe. My apologies, folks. Yeah, yeah. It's all good. It's all good. And that's what you guys did together was Quantum and Woody? <laughs> no, I didn't do quite. He did Quantum and Woody. I did Archer and Armstrong. Oh, excuse me. Okay, and then. I, Tom did some covers for Archer and Armstrong. We did a book called Hulk Season 1. Oh. Marvel. Yes. And we did a kid's comic called How Tunes that uh, Nick Dragata created. Oh, fun. Um, and we did that for Image a couple years okay. ago. Okay, and Hulk season one, those were those uh, standalone um, hardbacks. Yeah, and I interviewed yeah. Tom. I know I interviewed Tom about it. I can't remember if we talked about it, but I know I talked to Tom about it. That was that was fantastic. That was really one of my favorite season one books. I'll be honest. Thank Absolutely. you. Yeah, we had, we, had, we had a great time. Oh doing yeah, that no, that's that's a gorgeous book and very well written. No question. Did you do other season one books, or was that your one? No, I I think it was different creative teams for every every franchise okay. have they repackaged any of your iron man stuff or uh you know uh i know you did hercules you got a nice healthy run on hercules no i i don't know until it shows up at my doorstep <laughs> and because i think that there's like uh there's some sort of like rube goldberg contraption like i picture like a lot of like <laughs> Like water wheels yeah. and like you know golf balls, Hamsters rolling wheels down. and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, rolling down, you know, tracks and stuff. So the comps kind of wander in. The strangest thing about the Marvel comps uh, program is every four months I'll get a copy of Alpha Flight Seven. Like I don't know where they're finding these copies of Alpha Flight Seven, but literally three years. Yeah, there's now been an Alpha Flight Seven in some collection of comps, I guess. So when they send you comps, are they, they are they trades and floppies, or are they just floppies? What do they send you? Yeah, it's it's a mixture. Yes, it's a mixture. It, it again, John. It it's like it's random. There's just there's just like a tube, like a <laughs> toothpaste tube, or like you know when or like how bakers have the icing. Sure. In the tube, and it just pumps out comics into like FedEx packages <laughs> and folders, and they mail that. And that, as far as I can tell, is how they do their comp program. And is it? And are they more than one? It's just like a wheel. I picture like a wheel with like shovels on the end, just kind of constantly <laughs> flipping out 
comics and sometimes they land in packages that have like Jason Aaron's name on them or, you know, Greg Pak's name on them and, and they get sent out to our various homes. Is it is it just a single copy or is it a stack? It's 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 two or three copies, and the other thing that I've noticed is that they never give you – I have yet to receive a complete set of a single series I've ever sure. done. It's always missing like issue four. Like I never got issue four for some okay. reason. So okay. I don't – again, gremlins are running this. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> no, I just – I do know too that obviously they're redressing old uh, arcs as epic collections or whatever and yes i just got the other day a copy of the re they're republishing all the spider-man brand new day okay. stuff so i one of okay those. very good okay volume four volume four okay because um yeah. again i you know also in particular i think your iron man miniseries were always like i think people would appreciate those in those times when and in fact, you know, obviously, prior to Marvel Legacy, several of their characters were not, including Iron Man, were not in a, a status quo sort of. Okay, this is just sure. the problem of the story arc of the next six months or five months. Versus, hey, Tony's dead, and Riri is Iron Man basically right now. Uh, you know, I mean, just or in a coma or whatever. And I know it right. might have been, as I remember correctly... He's a tummy ache. He, he has to lie down. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or Cap is, you know, too old, is 90 years old and, you know, whatever. Because I even remember when uh, John Rye Neighbor and uh, and John Cassidy were doing their very ambitious Cap fighting, Captain America fighting terrorism, Steve Rude, at the same time, had a nice Cap miniseries of, hey, if you miss just Cap punching... Marvel villains. Here's a, here's a quick mini series, sure. and and much like that, that's how you. At least that's how I perceived your Iron Man runs when you had a couple yeah. miniseries here and there. The Iron Man. Well, it wasn't miniseries. It was it was another book. Actually, it was called Iron Man Legacy. Oh, okay. And so it was the out of continuity exactly. Iron Man book yeah. That came out when Iron Man two came out. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. Well, am I right? It did it last. It was a couple arcs though, right? It wasn't just. One mini two. Okay, two. It was eleven or twelve issues, and then what you also might be thinking of is I also did the Marvel Adventures, the kids. Iron yes, Man. indeed. Okay, there you go. That also lasted for a little over a year. Okay, all right, man. No, interesting. No, Iron Man has rarely been a sales juggernaut, even though it is in comics. Even though he is the cornerstone of the MCU. Isn't that interesting, and uh, that still fascinates me as well. So, yeah, that's. Well, again, it's it's figuring out that magic of getting the the people that are you know watching the films or the television show to get into the comics, and I think that's still a, an equation that is you know kind of still being pondered. <laughs> well, and this sort of brings our discussion around full circle because one of the things we talk about in the last issue of Conflict History of Comics is this idea that you know there's sort of a commonsensical idea that the comics consumer has that 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 the problem is is advertising. You know, right. like, why don't you – I guess it's a common thing you hear comic Absolutely. fans saying. Well, why don't they put ads for comics? On the TV shows, on the, in the films, yes. Uh, yeah, the, being in the movie yeah. or whatever. Um, the challenge is, you know, no one reads, number one. <laughs> sure. No, <laughs> you know, I understand. It's not like people don't know that there, that there aren't comics. Uh, and then the other sort of challenge is that, is that the, the direct market, the comic book direct market from day one – 
was a fan market and was created specifically because it was very difficult to get complete runs of comics on the newsstand because no one gave That's a crap right. uh, about whether or not, you know, you had Alpha Flight 4 and 5 and 6. You know, you would get four, and then suddenly you get eight. Right. You know, it would be this kind of, and that's why the, that's why comic shop showed up, and so it's kind of imprinted on the direct market DNA that, there, that it's a fan market, even though it's evolved to do many wonderful things and still does many wonderful things. I think it's a challenge for the comics marketplace when you know when Cloak and Dagger have a TV show, you know your characters are being exploited a lot, <laughs> and. In other words, why, if I'm a fan of various superheroes, I can just go see them on the screen. Right. Like I don't, you know, CGI. A lot to me it has to do with CGI. The fact that the and part of and I think a barrier for superhero movies for a long time was the fact you could never get special effects that were as effective as the way an artist could draw. Okay. It. And I think arguably now you can um, with computer effects, and so I think it's really challenging. For a fan market where the fans now have – you're now – Marvel is essentially competing with itself. Yes. In that in that, the movies and TVs can be with the comics and that's not a fair fight. Agreed. I'll know who's going to win that Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't even mention obviously – You saying earlier with Lincoln, you know. <laughs> what you say? Say it again. Uh, just like you said earlier with Lincoln, you know, the, when you do a movie of it, that becomes right. the standard thing. Right. You know? Well, yeah. And the comics now – the comic storylines now follow the movies and, and I don't know how much of that is – conscious or subconscious on the part of, of the comics producers, but you know, uh, it's a challenge for the, the market to overcome the fact that Black Lightning has a TV show, you know what I mean? So it's like, why do I need to, what purpose do these ongoing series yeah, have? I love, actually, did like, you see that first episode? I'm not a big superhero guy, John. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I try to watch one of those CWs, Superhero shows, my eyes just roll back underneath my eyelids. Well, they almost—I've uh, heard Black Lightning is probably the best it's one. It's great, and I, but, what uh, I love about it is it, it kind of incorporates his past. That you could almost say the Tony Isabella, um, oh shame on me, uh, Trevor Von Eden comics were his right. earlier career because they kind of say when he was younger he was out kind of in a daredevil way as he was in the seventies comics patrolling his neighborhoods and keeping things you know safe. And it kind of almost does like say, okay, great. So those seventies comics do represent that part of Jeff Pierce's life, and it's neat to sure. you know like, oh, that's great. It really validates the comics in an interesting way. Um, Wake me up with the outsiders, <laughs> and I love the outsiders. Don't get me wrong, but I bring me Halo. Yeah, ooh, yes, Halo, of course. I guess, I guess Katana has already shown up. In oh yeah. In the DC, that's true. In a weird version, both the Arrowverse and then the weird, that uh, wonky uh, last Batman series had Katana as well in it, and also I think oh, no, I think of the Suicide. I was thinking of the Suicide yeah, Squad movie. I try not to, <laughs> which which is which is less of a movie than it is a music video with supervillains. Wow, have you seen Bright the the Will Smith uh, Netflix movie? Because no. David Ayer. Uh, much like the director of Suicide Squad, is re-teamed up with Will, Will Smith for that movie. And I, I got to tell you, it got a lot of social media hate, as I'm sure you were aware of as well. But I'm also appreciating the the rebound or boomerang effect of, 
all right, relax. It's not bad. It's it's actually pretty good from a B movie standpoint. And again, it's mm-hmm. not made to be a hundred million dollar movie. It's a Netflix movie, which obviously does have a smaller budget. Do you have any thoughts on that whole Jodie Foster uh, complaint in the last couple of weeks? I don't know if you read about it. Uh, that no, well, she's basically saying that Hollywood has been taken over by the tentpole spectacle superhero movies. That's part of the problem, and she is very frustrated. That, you know, the types of films like The Accused and some of her great films, that it's tough to find a studio willing to, you know, put money behind a $40 million movie and being satisfied with the profits that come from a $40 million movie versus the big spectacles that do cost hundreds of millions of dollars and require these movies to make even more money. To, to get a profit, and that's why you've got a movie like Justice League, for better or for worse, that makes $600 million and fails, <laughs> which is yeah. amazing. I actually, I was surprised how much I liked Justice oh, League. I kind of right. got dragged to it in the middle of the day, and so my expectations were pretty ankle-level okay. low, but... but uh, I thought the flash was funny. Like, oh, that's fine. Hey, man, hey, dude, honestly, I didn't like it, and I've even been accused of trying to like sway other creators. Like, come on, you really you liked it? I won't shame anyone who likes it. Uh, really, I get like weird looks when I say I kind of liked right. it. So I have, I have the exact opposite uh, but, uh, experience. Well, it's even sadder, you know, building on what Jodie Foster was saying. I mean, it's even sadder in that you the you know the the Amazons and the streaming platforms of the yes. world have told to go back and start doing a tentpole model and do you know bazillion dollar thing. So so it is. You know, they are squeezing out smaller films, but that's when that's what you get. I think a lot of times when you have this intensity of competition and consolidation. Agreed. You know, I mean, I, you know, people, my casual friends, are like, what do you think of Disney buying Fox? I'm like, what What do you think about the crossover? I think, yeah, my favorite crossover. All the people lose their jobs, right? Once, right. Once ABC and Fox are combined, hundred you know? percent, man. No, and it's and that you're absolutely right from a behind the scenes standpoint. It's absolutely horrible, and also the likelihood of a, a smaller slate of movies from one company versus. I'm less, two. I'm less interested in the Fantastic Four having jobs than actual real human beings. Great, no, hundred <laughs> percent. I also though because it at least the way the quotes were framed in most of the articles that I read about what Jodie Foster said, it almost seemed like she was blaming the superhero movies. And I'm like, no, it's really the studio's fault for being greedy and wanting because they see Avengers make a billion dollars, that they want films to make in excess of hundreds of that even when the hundred million dollar threshold was such a big deal. Now it's not. And now, it, no, we want half a billion dollars. We want several hundred million well, dollars in profit for one when movie. You copy, when you copy the MCU model of yes. every film has to be interrelated in this universe, yes. you can't just do a couple superhero movies. you got to do a dozen yep. of them. Yep. You know, no one has been able to harness that energy in the way that Marvel did it, you know, that DCU has been a hot mess. Yeah. The the dark, the universal horror movie stuff was was kind of boneheaded to begin Agreed. with. Is a disaster. Agreed. Hasbro, I think, is scuttling there. I oh, I are they really? Because that's interesting. I uh, that seemed to still still be in its you know. Uh, well, they you know they just they've jettisoned the ROMs and masks of the world. 
um, which is not a huge shock. <laughs> um, I, I, th- I think people are kind of figuring out that, you know, the Marvel had a unique situation of having these mid-level popular characters who were not complete unknowns. You know, Iron Man had a cartoon, Thor had right, a cartoon, right. you know, <laughs> etc. the Hulk. Yeah. Uh, and then they built it very slowly while everybody else tries to is trying to sort of cut corners and kind of do the speed it up version Absolutely. of it. Absolutely, yeah. No, they rush they rush to reach that Marvel level with one movie or two movies. No, I agree. But I am I am still curious if we're still going to see a GI Joe Transformers crossover. Just out of just just you know curiosity, I have no dying dying need to see those two worlds collide. Oh, John. You know, I wondered with the Universal stuff. Yeah, I know. Believe me. No, no, I was too old. I didn't. I didn't. You know, I was trying to get laid at that point. I was. I wasn't playing with. Yeah. I was. Well, I was reading the Larry Hama comics. I no, and that's and great. I, I guess I am an. I am a former GI Joe comics. Have you writer, seen so. the toys that made us? The Netflix TV show about the toy. The background on the on all the toy franchises. No, actually, you know, I might. After I sign off with you, I might go check you that honestly out. Honestly, watch the GI Joe one in particular. I'm so glad that the Marvel portion of the story is very much part of that episode and larry's in there and you know very great cool yeah 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 larry's one of my favorite people so very quickly as we uh, because you mentioned the universal one i kind of think with universal and the and the and the franchises you know they the merchandise for decades was so tied to those original 30s and 40s and if you want to include the creature 50s movies that i almost think it's kind of necessary to go back to those original uh, Bud Westmore makeup and Jack, I forget the guy's name, who did the original Carla Frankenstein makeup. But like, Pierce. Jack Pierce, thank you. But but yeah. to go back to those original designs, and I know Dracula's kind of that tuxedo, hokey, 30s look, but... My boss, right, and, you, and maybe you don't need to sound like Count Chocula to, to sell your point, but, but maybe... Then they do, especially in the case of the Frankenstein monster. One failed franchise, two failed franchises, <laughs> ah, ah, three failed franchise movies. Ah, 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 ah. But that's exactly the point that they're trying so hard to redesign these and make them for a modern uh, audience. And it's like, you know, maybe you need to kind of have like a Monsters Fred Gwynn well, Frankenstein look, and uh, you know, and really go back to kind of classic basics. What do you What do you think of that? Well, they're all just looking for crap that's lying around that has been pre-vetted. I mean, you know, Hollywood, oh, I, I I have sympathy for them. Creating new stuff is really sure. hard. And 90% of everything that's new fails. Sure. And nobody does. Uh, and I get it. But by the same token, just leave Frankenstein alone. Let him stay Jesus dead. Christ. <laughs> Let him stay dead. Crying out loud. At least Black, Creature and Black Loon's getting laid. Yeah, I know. You know. Honestly, wasn't that great shape of water? Absolutely. My God. It's not a, John. It's not how canals work. <laughs> it's hard for me to support a movie with such a clear misunderstanding of the way canals work. That's fantastic. That's the first time I've heard that comment regarding the movie. So many mainstream a, people adore this movie. No, I think it's going to be, you know, Oscar, win a few Oscars, and I hope so because I, I really enjoyed the film. And no fish dick. We get no on-screen fish dick. That's not how canals work. That is my review of Shaved Water in a nutshell. Fantastic. That's excellent. Oh, my God. That's – well, all right. Eighty, just admit you want to keep him in your bathroom so you can bang him. <laughs> just – this is not how canals work. You're not fooling anyone. This is 
this is some weird kidnapping Patty Hearst uh, shit going on. Fred, here. we need a film uh, critic critique show because that's beautiful. I love that. That was excellent. All right, dude. Well, nice going. Action Presidents is back and and truly is back for the first time because unless you were at a convention getting those uh, specially yes. made or reading with pictures textbook. Yeah, kickstarted the reading with pictures textbook. It's 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 not back. It's here. It's it's back for the yes. first time. So and again the uh, the, de- the street date for the release. Uh, February 6th. Excellent. Okay, fantastic. And uh, this will be out before February 6th, so that's great. And the continuation of the comic book history of comics and uh, Ten Little Comedians is currently available in hardback, that, paperback that, coming out in the summer. And audiobook and Kindle, and the paperback is coming out. And the, con, the, and the con artist follows the month after. That's fantastic. So nice uh, nice uh, beginning in uh, mid-2018 for uh, Fred Van Lenty. I... Uh, I, I, I like where it's beginning, and I, I hope there are more projects to come, and uh, we can have a new conversation about uh, other things. I hope so. That would be awesome. Another great chat with Fred Van Lenty. I am embarrassed with uh, the goodwill that uh, the comics community has provided me and getting to know guys like Fred over the years. And I think I can't help but also include Greg Pak when I think of uh, – Fred Van Lenty and Ryan Dunleavy and some of these great co- comic creators that I've gotten to know at conventions and having them on the show and uh, celebrating their work. And, man, they're all going in such interesting directions. I mean, you know, Fred and Greg, you know, made their bones at Marvel and uh, are really into uh, their creator-owned projects. And it's really exciting to see what they're doing. Certainly Greg uh, obviously still has a foot at Marvel, uh, spent his time at D.C., and uh, it's it's really really wonderful to uh, see these guys continue to create wonderful I- ideas and stuff. Of course, Mecca uh, uh, Cadet U, uh, uh, Greg's wonderful book, Action Presidents, and uh, the novels that Fred is pursuing, and uh, Ryan as well with Action Presidents and some of the other projects that he's pursuing. So uh, I'm I'm really uh, pleased that these people come back. Sometimes it's hard to make room for new people because. God, I want to I wanna talk to, you know, my friends and see how they're doing. And it's uh, wonderful to hear how they're doing. So um, believe me, uh, that's why you might see, as, as I try, uh, certainly always to give you at least four episodes of Word Balloon a month. But sometimes we explode with episodes. I have a feeling February is going to be that kind of month. Uh, we've got a new Bendis tapes coming up at the end of this week. And, uh, man, I am so excited. Uh, it's in the can, so I can tell you. The great comedian Dana Gould. Who I'm such a fan of. I love his podcast. Uh, an excellent writer for The Simpsons for so many years. Uh, he, as you might know, is one of the biggest Planet of the Ape fans on the earth. And man, if you think Jeff Parker and Gabe Hardman and I, you know, have fun talking Planet of the Apes, wait till you hear Dana and I talking because he's got a great opportunity from Boom Studios to adapt Rod Serling's original. Planet of the Apes screenplay, much like George Lucas's original Star Wars screenplay, very different in a lot of ways from what we got on the screen. And I'll let Dana explain it, but you might already know if you're a Planet of the Apes fan some of the differences in uh, Serling's original script. I hadn't realized until talking to Dana how close it was to the creation of the Twilight Zone, or I should say the end of the Twilight Zone and the creation of this script. Uh, also at the time, Serling was writing one of my favorite uh, movies that he was involved in, Seven Days in May, a very compelling political thriller uh, where the military 
is planning a coup against the sitting president. And it's a really great movie with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster and uh, an all-star cast. Serling wrote that. He also wrote this original treatment of Planet of the Apes. And a lot of the flavor of what he wrote is still in the final movie. But again, when you talk to Dana, uh, Dana's going to be adapting that screenplay for a Boom Studios um, graphic novel. Cannot wait. It's coming out in the summer. But as soon as the press release hit, I uh, I talked to uh, the Boom people and I'm like, get me Dana Gould. I really want to talk to Dana Gould. And thankfully, uh, Dana's people are like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And we had a we had a tremendous conversation as I'm recording this. It was just yesterday, and man, I had a I had a full pack Tuesday. I was coming off an all night shift on the radio station. I interviewed Dana in the morning, uh, took uh, some serious power napping in the uh, afternoon and evening, and then woke up in the late evening to uh, have a new conversation with Brian Bendis about everything that's going on with him. Uh, obviously, taking over Superman, uh, joining DC, leaving Marvel. Uh, his health scare that really was a scary thing, and uh, I'm glad he's better. He sounds great, and uh, that's going to be another great conversation. So very excited about the next two word balloons that are coming up. It'll be the Bendis tapes first, and then Dana Gould. And man, we got a big slew of other people coming up in the near and far future. Very, very pleased and excited about some of the conversations we'll be having here right at Word Balloon. Thanks for being part of the ride. And uh, look, looking forward to uh, our uh, sharing these conversations with you. Today's Word Balloon was uh, brought to you again by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your support. And also from our friends at InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Yeah, I know I'm slurring a little bit. It's early morning. You'll forgive me. Uh, again, I'm kind of on screwy hours because of uh, the shift. But I wanted to look up some great collections of uh, books from uh, Fred Van Lenti at InStock Trades. Um, for instance, you really got to dip into Fred's run on Conan. He did an amazing job on Conan the Barbaria for uh, for Dark Horse. And uh, there are volumes available now. Uh, there are, like, for instance, there's volume 18 of Conan, Damned Horde. Uh, it's Brian Ching at, on the art chores and Fred doing the writing. It's 42% off, $14.49. You can get Zuthal of the Dusk, volume 19. Uh, again, Brian is doing the art there, and uh, Fred doing the writing, 42% off, $11.59. You can also get Which Shall Be Born, Volume 20. That one's 42% off, uh, $14.49. Uh, there is also the original collection of the comic book history of comics, Birth of a Medium. Uh, that is Fred and Ryan. Uh, this is the original. Now, it doesn't have the uh, She Story uh, components of the book. But uh, I absolutely do uh, recommend uh, th- these wonderful collections. Uh, the old old volumes are 30% off. You can get them for the trade paperback is $13.99. You can get the hardcover for $15.39. How about, man, We I think we briefly mentioned it, Hulk Season 1, Fred and Tom Fowler. What a great retelling of uh, the Bruce Banner saga. And it's it's a tremendous graphic novel. It's beautifully drawn by Tom. We talked to Tom about this when it was coming out. We also talked to Fred. Uh, it's still out there, and it is on sale now, 42% off, $14.49. Dip into his run of G.I. Joe with uh, Steve 
Steve Kuth. I just want to make sure I'm saying Steve's name right. Uh, it's uh, $13.99 for Volume 1, Homefront. Uh, let's see what else we got from Fred. I'm kind of literally scrolling through as I'm talking to you. There was Brain Boy, uh, the reboot of a great gold key character that uh, Fred did with Freddie Williams. And uh, Volume 1 is Pay versus Pay, or Psy versus Pay, excuse me. It's um, 42% off, $8.69. You can get, man, there's just so much great product here from Fred Van Lenti at InStockTrades.com. I encourage you to go and dip into uh, the great collection of stuff there. Just waiting for you to uh, check out. Uh, great stuff, including Marvel stuff, uh, some great Valiant stuff as well from Fred Van Lenti and company at InStock Trades. Check it out for yourself. Don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping. They're my friends. They have supported Warren Balloon over the years gladly. And uh, I, I can't uh, tell you how much I appreciate their support as well. So uh, do, do yourself a favor and do some shopping today at InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. You can tell I'm really excited about what's coming up this month. And uh, thanks a lot for listening, really. Uh, thanks for supporting me at Blog, Blog Talk Radio as well, um, our new platform. And um, things are going great. I think uh, a lot of new listeners have joined us. I always say the best way you can help Word Balloon out is you can let a friend know that is a comic book fan and is looking for more uh, coverage and uh, conversation that you may not get in your news web blogs of comics. It seems these days they're more interested in top five lists and top ten lists and that kind of clickbait stuff. That I, Hey, man, I like it too. I'm the first guy there. You know, I, uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's entertaining. But what I really miss is good in-depth conversation, and uh, I'm glad that uh, you know I have the time. I'm making the time, uh, and the creators are making the time to come here, share their stories with me, and therefore share them with you. So I hope you're enjoying what you're hearing here. There's lots more to come in 2018. Uh, it's Word Balloon's 13th year. Dun dun. May 10th. That's the uh, that's the anniversary date. Uh, there's going to be a lot of great conversations going on leading up to that and beyond. It's uh, I'm really excited. Uh, like I said, 2017 was kind of a rocky year, and uh, you guys really helped and women uh, support the show and stand by me with your listenership. Uh, thank you, and uh, all I can say is uh, the best is yet to come. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.